Um, if you would be turning in your Bibles to Genesis, uh, we're going to be in chapter 17, verses 1 through 17 this morning as part of our sacrament series. And today, the work that we want to accomplish is to recognize some patterns that the Lord sets up to better help us understand uh, the purpose that the sacraments have for us all. Again, uh, what we're trying to do is lay firm foundations uh, for each and all of us, regardless of where we fall exactly in terms of either baptism or even the Lord's Supper. We want the sacraments to be the benefit to us as Christ's bride and Christ's church, uh, regardless of where we fall on some of those things that, that we, we could debate over. And so this morning is hopefully a helpful uh, addition to the foundation laid from last week. If you remember, it's critical that we remember that the power that the sacraments wield, that, that it comes in the same way that the, the gospel is powerful to us, that it is in God's grace alone, uh, through faith alone, in Christ alone. The individual who administers the sacrament doesn't affect the power, ultimately. And that's good news to us, is it not? Because how fallen are we at times? How, how mistaken can the, the people be who've served us or have baptized us? If that were to render the sacrament ineffectual, many of us would be in deep trouble, Right? Uh, and so, or we may not even know the trouble we're yet in. And so we want to be careful that we don't give that kind of power to them. And we also want to recognize that it doesn't depend on us. That oftentimes the, the sacraments are working in ways that we are not even aware of. They're working at a, a sub-spiritual level or, or a always do work. We can take heart either in us individually, and this next part I'm going to say is really important to the understanding of the sacraments, or in us collectively. One of the things I think we struggle with when it comes to sacraments is we have way too individualistic a view uh, of the sacraments themselves. That it really is just for us, and as long as I get something out of it, I don't care if John gets anything out of it or any of the rest of you. That shouldn't be our position. And any benefit that it is to, to me, it ought to be of benefit to the greater community, correct? And so uh, these are important concepts for us. So as we step into this text, let me give you the key truth that I'd love for us to walk away with. It's this, that God gives the sacraments to strengthen us in covenantal relationship with him. Let me say that again. God gives us the sacraments, and by virtue of that, the signs themselves, uh, to strengthen us in covenantal relationship with him. If you would give your attention to the reading of God's word, this is Genesis 17, 1 through 17. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face, and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you, and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful, and I will make you into nations, and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant, to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And I will give to you and to your offspring after you the land of your sojournings, all the land of Canaan for an everlasting possession, and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your offspring after you, throughout their generations. 
This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your offspring after you. Every male among you shall be circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised. Every male throughout your generations, whether born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not of your offspring. Both he who is born in your house and he who is bought with your money shall surely be circumcised. So shall my covenant be in your flesh an everlasting covenant. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. And God said to Abraham, as for saying, I will bless her. And moreover, I will give you a son by her. I will bless her, and she shall become uh, nations. Kings of peoples shall come from her. Then Abraham fell on his face and laughed and said to himself, Shall a child be born to a man as a hundred years old? Shall Sarah, who is ninety years old, bear a child? This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Now, uh, there's a lot going on here that we won't be able to get into because our purpose is to see the patterns and the connections for the ways in which God works in reference to his covenant. Uh, as we step into this text, let me, let me ask you this question. Uh, what signs and symbols help you to remember others' love for you? Now, the obvious, if you're married, is your wedding band, right? It's a helpful sign and reminder of you being in covenant. Uh, if any of you who have, uh, have gone through divorce and that wedding band is taken off, you also recognize its absence, Right? So it's a means by which we, we ourselves are reminded of whose and whose we are, who and whose we are in, in the small sense. Uh, and that also lets people around us know that we are in a covenant relationship with someone else. In addition to that, there are many other ways in which we are reminded of the love of others. One of the things that I greatly enjoy, so one of my love languages is gifts, but I'm particular, which makes it hard. Right, Susan? Uh, my poor wife, the first Christmas that we had together married, she, who is very practical, bought me a, a wonderful shaver, which I, I need sometimes because I don't produce much hair on my face and now my head. Uh, and she bought me some other things that were very practical, very needed. And I was deeply offended. And it was one of our first real fights as a married couple because I didn't handle it terribly well. And, and I, I can't speak to how she handled it. That she'll have to admit to that herself. Uh, but it was tough. But then Susan realized that, hey, wait a second. And, and she since has more than figured it out and has given me some things that serve as even more than my wedding band. Things that are in my office, things that are in other places that remind me of how deeply she loves and cares for me. That she is willing uh, to forego her practical side and, and buy me something frivolous that I may only use a few times in my life, but it means a lot to me. This is also true of many of the friendships that I have and even family stuff. I love being given personal things so that I'm frequently reminded of folks and can pray for them. Uh, uh, one of our missionaries who's in Thailand gave me, a, 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 he would call it a teacup. Uh, I use it, well, I have used it for tea, actually. Uh, he's a potter, and so, uh, so Tim Mills is uh, often prayed for if I have a spot of tea now and again. 
Uh, and so it is, it is a great gift to have these things, these, we could call them totems in the right sense of the word, or uh, evidences of people's love and care for us, even though it may not be your love language. And so in this way, the Lord our God wants us to have tangible things, things that frequently remind us or signify his deep and profound love for us, and more importantly, as we heard throughout this text, that his covenant is eternal. His love is not like human love. It doesn't wax and wane like human love. It doesn't end oftentimes like human love. In fact, it is, it is his great promise to us, and he wants us to constantly be or frequently reminded of his deep and profound love for us. And one of the ways in which he has done that is the ways in which he invites us into the story, right? And so as we step into this discussion of the Abrahamic covenant, we're kind of toward uh, the, not the end of the Abrahamic covenant story, but it started really in Genesis 12. But really, if you think the Abrahamic covenant started in Genesis 12, you, you don't understand what God's been doing since Genesis 1. Remember when he created... Adam and Eve, he said, let us make them in our image. And what he was saying is that both male and female could display his characteristics, right? We've talked about this before, Exodus 34, 6 and 7 is the critical text on if you're wondering, hey, what, what are the characteristics of God? That is a great place to go for you to, to have a, a quick understanding of who God says he is. And then the rest of the Bible plays out those characteristics in real time. Jesus, in fact, comes to display those characteristics and then calls us to do the same. In fact, righteousness is a shorthand for that reality, right? We often think righteousness means, no, I, I keep a set of rules. No, that's actually not it. Uh, in fact, if, if, if our religion doesn't produce character and ethic, we're doing something wrong. That's a pretty quick way for us to understand we're off on a different tangent than what God would have us to be and do. And so the story begins in Genesis 1 when he says, he gives them essentially what we call, and some of you may be familiar with this, the cultural mandate. Others have called it the creation covenant. Uh, and so what he says to them is, I want you to be fruitful and multiply. Uh, and I want you to extend the garden temple and fill the world with my glory. And there's this one tree that I don't want you to eat of just yet. Uh, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so he, he gave them uh, so, uh, some things to do, as it were. And if you were keeping score, regardless of what you think, how long it took creation to occur, the clock had to start at some point for Adam and Eve because the sun rises and sets at the same interval it's done since the beginning of time. So for them, their first day, doing the work that God invited them to would be what day? The eighth day. Now the seventh day on which God rested, they too got to a plow. Right? So work doesn't originate with sin. Work originates with the call of God. And so, so they got to enjoy the, the things that he had created before they added anything to it whatsoever. Isn't that a beautiful picture of the grace of our God? How often does he invite us to taste and see that we're good before we've done anything at all to warrant being able or worthy or have added anything to the flavor of the thing we are tasting? And so that eighth day is also a pattern that we will see uh, that shows up here, right? The children were to be circumcised. The male children would be circumcised on the eighth day. 
And that pattern also follows. What day does Jesus rise on, if you know the calendar, as it were? Well, it'd be the eighth day, as it turns out. Now, we, you're going, eighth day? We don't do eight-day weeks around here. I understand, and that is true. And they didn't either, by the way, but uh, they recognized it as such because it would serve as a Janus to the week behind and to the week ahead. Uh, and so if you don't know what a Janus is, it's something that looks forward and back. And so uh, it's an important concept theologically, not necessarily something that you can now go around. Uh, what, what is it? The <laughs> There's a commercial on Spotify that's just maddening. It's like, I have the Sunday scaries. And somebody's like, oh, we got an extra day in the weekend. Like we have an eighth day. Well, there's a truth to that. The Lord has given us, in essence, an eighth day. It is the power of the resurrection. It is, it is, is marking who and whose we are. And so with, that, with that, that call that they were given, you understand what happens. There's the fall. They choose to eat of the tree and uh, end up uh, uh, being judged and dying. They're going to die. So they are now limited in the ways that the Lord wanted to bless them. But the blessing, the calling is not over, right? They're still called to be fruitful and multiply, to fill the earth with God's glory, and to, and to obey him by keeping from the things that are evil, right? And so, as you may know the story in Genesis 4, there's a kerfluffle with the first two children, and then the Lord grants Seth, and when Seth comes into the world, many people begin to turn to the Lord God. So he, in Genesis 3.15, gave the promise that the seed of the woman, the children that the woman would bear, uh, would ultimately uh, maintain his glory throughout the generations, that he was guaranteeing he would no longer leave it purely to human decision because that had gone bad from the start. This is an important concept for us because it doesn't matter how resourced you are. It doesn't matter uh, how much you've got going for you, how talented you are. You will, at some point, in selfish pride, sin. You are never going to be able to be pleasing to the Lord in and of yourself that is, that is a devastating reality if that's all there was. And yes, that is the bad news. And no, we don't practice worm things. Despite all of our failings with so few excuses, he still chooses to remain in eternal covenant relationship with us Gentiles, as he promises here in the Abrahamic covenant. And as you know, the Genesis story, as it goes on, uh, the world kind of gets bigger and there's more people around and there's more opportunity for failings. And you have Genesis 6 where stuff goes bad and every, every evil desire of man's heart's being displayed in the world. And that's before the internet. That's impressive. And so the Lord floods the earth in judgment. And out of that judgment rises the promise again in Genesis 9, which is, a, again, a restatement of Genesis 1. The cultural mandate shows up again in Noah and his kin. And if you remember the story, one of them becomes the father of the Canaanites because he fails to love his father and protect his, his glory well. And if you're not going to protect your earthly father's glory, what hope would you have of protecting your Abba father who you can't see? And so unfortunately, he becomes the father to the Canaanites, which is going to show up in this story. And as you remember, the story goes along and you have the Tower of Babel in Genesis 11. So every time things uh, are going well, man proves he, or humanity proves, both men and women, they can't handle it in and of themselves. They just can't. And every time God shows his eternal faithfulness by out of the ashes of that circumstance, 
rising again the covenant that he made in Genesis 1. The reason for which we are created has never changed. And so out of the ashes of, if you remember, uh, the Tower of Babel, he calls a guy named Abram and his wife Sarah. Out of the land of Ur, which if you know your biblical geography, is somewhere around about Iraq or what would have been known as Babylon. So who are the Israelites at this point? They haven't been formed yet. What law has been given to them? Ain't really one been given. Now, you could make an argument like that that cultural mandate is law, and that's a, good, that's a good argument. But law in the way that we understand how law functions, it's not yet been given as it is in the Sinai covenant, which comes later in Exodus, right? And so here we have Abram. He's called. He, 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 he shows him the stars. He says, I'm going to make you uh, more plenteous. Your family will be more plenteous than the stars, and I will bless nations through you. That means the Gentiles will be included, and for those who fight against the Lord our God and his people, they will be cursed. So there's a judgment. There's an ethic to all this that is not some sort of strange universalism. And if you remember, there's that kind of strange story where God cuts, the animals are cut in half, and Abram goes to sleep. He doesn't even participate in the covenant. God passes through as a pot. There's a lot to be said there we don't have time for. But uh, ultimately, God was saying, I will bear the curse. Because Abram, all, your, all you, Abram and Sarah, were like, okay, this sounds great. And the years begin to pass. Ten years go by. 11 years go by. Year 12, Sarah has a plan. She's like, look, obviously God needs our help. And so, if you remember, uh, she, she offers up Hagar, one of the servants, who is, uh, 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 quickly becomes pregnant. The Lord's blessing is upon Hagar, but not upon Sarah. It angers Sarah. And you remember, she beats her. And in fact, the child that they have is a son named Ishmael. He also gets beaten. They get cast out into the wilderness to die. Now, that brings us up to Genesis 17. What's important about that story is what Abram doesn't know is that Ishmael is not that he's not the covenant son. So he, by his knowledge, has kicked out the blessing that the Lord has given to die. Now, here's good news for all of us. Can't none of us sin that big ever. We're just not in that position no more, and amen and amen. But that actually highlights how deep the Father's love Notice as we step into this text, who summons whom? God summons Abram. And notice what he says. He says, I am God Almighty. Now, why, why would he start there? Well, because Abram needs to know who he's talking to and who he's dealing with, right? And so there's a sense in which, and we speak of this often here, uh, reverence and fear, it ought not be that you are driven from God and quake in your boots and all of those things. It really is about wonder and awe, but there's also a seriousness to you are dealing with a holy, eternal, powerful, loving and kind God who will die for you in the form of Jesus Christ or he will prune you, he will hurt you, he will break you if it is necessary, in order for you to know how deeply he loves you. Now that, for some of you, that you can say, well, that sounds kind of abusive, is it not? Well, it would be if you weren't God and didn't know exactly the places where we need to be broken, where we need to be cut off, where we need to find ourselves in darkness so that he can call to us, those who sit in darkness, come out. 
And so, what does he say to Abram? Abram, you got to understand, he's got to be scared. And we can tell by his response that he is freaked out. Now, what does God say to him? All right, Abram, I am the Lord God Almighty. How about you walk before me and be blameless? We could read it that way. It could be that God is saying, go ahead and try to take a step. I will kill you. That ain't what he's saying. What he's saying to him is, I have redeemed you. I have forgiven you. He's saying, Abram, I know what you've done. Walk before me, for I have made you blameless. Now notice how Abraham responds. He actually doesn't obey God at all. And fear uh, and, and just brokenness. He now has a, an understanding at some level of what he has done. He is before the Lord God Almighty. He is exiled the covenant son to die. And yet the Lord says, I make you blameless. I love you. And notice how God goes on to say that I make my covenant between me and you. Now, for those of you who are here, every time you hear the word covenant, do not think legal uh, legal documentation. Don't think just purely a legal uh, 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 interaction. No, you should think relational. You should, you should know that when he says covenant, he's speaking of relationship, and this is the means of the relationship, right? This is the means by which you will know who and whose you are. And he's willing to condescend to us to give us things that we can see, give us things that, that we can participate in, right? And so the first thing that he does is he changes Abram's name. Why would he do that? Well, you do know you got a name change coming. Did you know that? When we get to heaven, there's a name written on Christ's hand that only he knows. But when he, when he gives it to you, your redeemed and reconciled name, you'll know it. And why is that important? Because everything that's associated with your old name, all of the sin and all of the things you thought you accomplished in your own strength will fall before him. And you will have a new name that has been redeemed and reconciled and resurrected in him. Right? I hope that mine is not the original name that my family was wanting to give me, which was Conan or Conan, depending on where you're from. I hope that ain't it, but if it is, I'll laugh pretty heartily because it'll be pretty funny, right? What if I was your pastor? My pastor's Conan, and he's a barbarian. Yep, sure he is. Now, notice there's a lot of repetition in here, right? The Lord repeats himself a lot. Now, why, why is there a necessity for repetition? Because we are hard of heart and hard of hearing. And so the next thing that he says, he says, not only have I changed your name, I'm going to give you a place to live. Because remember, Abram had given up all of his family connection, all the land that he was tied to. You need to understand the gravity of that in their circumstance. He essentially was quite possibly issuing a death sentence for he and his future generations. If you did not, it's not like here where you can just buy land, Right? Well, now it's harder than, almost as hard as it was back then. Uh, but, but now, uh, but then, uh, you, you had to, it had to be given to you through family. So for him to give up what generations before him had fought to keep was to expose himself in, to great vulnerability, which is why the Lord says, I am going to give you a land. 
That land is Canaan, kind of the crown jewel in that area. It was the land of milk and honey. It would be the place, the thoroughfare for which the nations oftentimes would have to pass through in order to get to other places. So in essence, it would have meant that they, as kingdom of priests, would have had easy access to Gentiles and other nations, and that information would go on from there. That was the purpose. But we know there comes a problem. But this is the second sign. And then he gives a third sign of his covenant love for them in circumcision. Now, the, the problem that we often have with circumcision is a very similar problem that, that the Judaizers wound up having. We often see it as he only cared about the men. And we sometimes can, can think that it, it gave men a certain power over women, All right, so, uh, which unfortunately, oftentimes they did do. This mark actually was not unique. The Egyptians also circumcised for cleanliness reasons. It wasn't really religious for them. And there was another culture that escapes my, my brain at this point that did the same thing in and of that same time. So it's not that this mark would have made them separate from all the surrounding peoples, right? It wasn't intended for that. It was intended for them and their hearts to understand who and whose they were and that they were beloved of God and as a warning. That cutting away that it's spoken of several times is judgment. But it's better that a portion be cut away than the whole thing, than the whole person. In fact, circumcision gets used of Christ in his crucifixion. It is referred to as Christ being circumcised or cut off from the land of the living. So it is, in essence, a sign of both judgment and redemption, a reminder to them. Now, at eight days old, what kind of power did this child now have? None. In fact, the promise in the sign could not come to fruition until sometime later. And let me ask you this. I know many of you know biology. Uh, can you unilaterally fulfill the Abrahamic covenant? You understand what I just said? Can you by yourself, you alone, Make nations and kings. No, you can't. Which is why you see this bookend type in this, this text, right? He starts with Abram. Why? Because Abram was the most powerful? No, because Abram was the most responsible. Not responsible in that he, he was, was the smartest of the two of them. No, he was the most responsible in terms of he was the one that would stand before God and be accounted, have to account for the covenant itself and its breaking. But it, Sarai is very important to this covenant, is she not? Which is why it's bookended that God turns to her and you notice says the very same thing, the very same blessing, the very same promise. He says, I'm changing your name from Sarai to Sarah. Nations will come from you. Nope. So what we have to remember is nothing has changed from Genesis 1. We get in a lot of trouble when we move on from the truth of Genesis 1, which is we are co-heirs. That we, are, uh, we can't do this individually. We cannot unilaterally accomplish anything. Could this church function if only the men served. How many, how many men would like to start taking on handbell choir? It's really not an offer. Uh, Stephanie wouldn't allow it. <laughs> we might do it one year just to see, right? It'll be, it'll be metal. You need to understand that. They'll probably be called like hell's bells or something. It'll be crazy. 
But anyway. Uh, so we recognize this is still true today, you understand. There is, there is no doing what we do if we don't equip and disciple and build up and edify and encourage and include in all of the various ways that are important to the gospel going forward. And it would have been important for them to recognize that the, the sign itself was not something for them to overemphasize. In fact, that's, again, this is where the Judaizers get in trouble. You remember the New Testament? In fact, the book of Galatians is critical to our understanding of the, the eternality of the Abrahamic covenant. But you have Judaizers coming in and saying, look, Jesus, great. Glad you have him. It's wonderful. But you need to be circumcised. How did Paul respond to that? It's one of the harshest that Paul has ever been. He basically says, I wish that the Judaizers would... I'll say it kindly, recircumcise or emasculate themselves. You can't preach that much. But Paul was willing to say because of the cost. And, and again, what they were doing was they were overemphasizing circumcision instead of what circumcision pointed to. In fact, Paul goes on to say in Colossians 3 and in one other place, there will neither be circumcision or uncircumcision, new heavens, new earth. In fact, there'll be neither male nor female, barbarian or Scythian, nor Jew nor Greek. All of those distinctions fall at the throne of grace. Now, why does that matter? Well, because there's nothing that keeps us from the Lord our God. All of us have equal access, and we should treat each other as such. We should encourage and edify each other as such. This is not something that was meant to, to uh, create a power struggle. That's the exact opposite of what was to happen. This was a sign that was to humble them. Now, think about how with baptism and the Lord's Supper, we have made so much about the thing itself that we have forgotten what it really points to. So far, this is church history. I mean, we've shed blood over this issue. Uh, I think it's Andy Gullihorn has a great song about, uh, about the Lord's Supper and how we fight, fight about, is it, is it well, I may be quoting Derek Webb, which is dangerous, but uh, is it wine or is it grape juice? Well, for some of you, like, what does it say in the Bible? <laughs> it says wine. And for those of you who, who uh, are sons and daughters of the temperance movement in the 19th century, you're like, eh, I think we better stick with grape juice. We get loose. And so is it wine or is it grape juice? That's not what matters. Ultimately, and if you were in China and you were in the underground church and buying wine would signal to the authorities that you might be doing something you ought not be doing, would you use grape juice? Yep. Now, I'm not advocating for this stuff that we've probably all experienced if you were Baptist in any way, shape, or form. Now, I'm not picking on the Baptists here, but there's been many a youth group where there was Cheetos and Meliella called communion. <laughs> I don't, yeah, I'm not, I, God's going to have to sort that one out. But I, it's just not really, I, I don't think that's it. Uh, but we need to be careful that we don't miss what is behind all these things, right? What is foundational to these things. They are intended to strengthen us together, not just as individuals, right? Communion and baptism does strengthen us at the individual level, but for the communal purpose and in community. And too often, we're not paying attention to that. 
Too often we're making it about the individual thing itself and what we think about it instead of what God's trying to say to us and how God is trying to use it to make sure that we remember the story. All of this, all of this points to his covenant faithfulness and his love. And if you find yourself, I'm going to sound like Steve Brown for a second. Steve Brown used to say to us in class, he's like, if you're talking about the Trinity for more than three minutes, you can guarantee you're, you're a heretic. It's heresy. Now, he was being funny, but it kind of makes sense, right? Like the, so, so if you find yourself talking about the sacraments void of what it points to, I can guarantee you. Not that it's heresy, but there are troubled waters ahead. I can guarantee you that you're talking about the wrong key from what God would have us to speak of it. And that's important to us. That's helpful to us. Now, I'm not saying that we shouldn't have conversations about is it wine or grape juice. I'm not saying we shouldn't have conversations about should infants be included in the covenant as from the beginning of, of recorded history and time. I'm not saying that we shouldn't have discussions about uh, the manner and means by which we do what we do. But, but please, people of God, always have in view, is that conversation helping us does it, is the foundation of that conversation a desire to better understand God's love for us and who we are and how we are to then enter into it, did we not? And so we also know that circumcision in the flesh guarantees nothing on the human side. It guarantees everything as far as God's eternal commitment to his people. What must happen even the Old Testament makes this very clear, and it says it in the New as well. What must happen for those who are circumcised in order for them to truly benefit from that eternal covenant that God has promised? They must undergo another circumcision, not a re-circumcision. And this other circumcision, interestingly, is neither male nor female. You understand? It's the circumcision of the heart that is spoken of in several places, but it begins in Deuteronomy 30. Jeremiah speaks of it, Ezekiel speaks of it. There must be an inward transformation from the outward sign. And this is why community is so important. So think if you circumcised a kid and then you took and left him in the desert and said, hey, we'll be back in 18 years to see what you think about all this. How would that go? That's why children's ministry, uh, family worship, Youth ministry is so critical to the future of the church. We're not leaving it up to them to figure out, right? We, we are to help them see not just what is signified uh, on the outside, but they also need to see a transformation from the inside. Think of many of the deconstruction stories that are floating around the internet. How many of them start with, I went to church all the time and at home, my dad or my mom was a complete animal and monster. There was a dissonance between what was the outward sign and what should have been the manifestation of the inward reality. So this is critical that we not, again, not just focus on outward accoutrement or these outward things, but instead make sure we are emphasizing what they are pointing to. Right? So this is critical in our understanding of the sacraments that these things are to strengthen us in relationship with God and with each other, right? This, you want to wonder where, where is Israel beginning 
this is a pretty good place to start. This would be the sign of, of who was of Israel. And notice, notice already the inclusionary nature of it. Their slaves, those that they would have bought, which is, was a part of their culture, again, not to be excused, but notice how God is beginning to humanize and even redeem that. He says, even those you have bought must be circumcised. So what does that make them? They're family. And they're to be treated as such. Isaiah 58 picks up on this theme where he says, you guys are treating those who have been circumcised, circumcised slaves who haven't heard from me in a long time. Now, this is obviously my translation. You haven't heard from me in a long time. It's because you are treating those who are my children like they are outcasts. Woe be unto you to keep the Sabbath from them. Woe be unto you for you to take up the Sabbath for your own purposes. And so we see even here the beginnings of the undoings of the broken systems and structures that were born of sin and brokenness. And so notice that the Lord, as he goes through this and makes all these promises, how do, after all they've seen, how do Abraham and Sarah respond? They crack up laughing. They're like, this is the worst plan we think you've ever had. That other plan was bad. It just got worse. Now, does God then forsake them? Does, does the Bible end at Genesis 17, 17 and seen? Yeah, no, he's got a long history after that. And praise be to God that his grace continues despite their laughter. This goes back to what we talked about even last week, how the ordinary chosen means that God uses, they make no sense to us, and we think it's a waste of time. And God goes, yeah, that's the only way you're going to really kind of figure it out. Like, you need something that you have to question in some measure to really be able to see its power and its glory and its goodness. And so here the Lord is again so gracious, so kind, so good to them, and he gives them this sign, circumcision, that cannot reflect any fulfillment for at least, you biology folks, 13, 14 years, and it requires the other half, the co-heir, to make sure that that covenant is fulfilled and continues. So why would they treat one another in any sort of power dynamic when they both need the same love, the same forgiveness. Notice both of them laughed. Both of them disbelieved. And rightly so in some ways. And so here we, the people of God, need to recognize that yes, the sacraments at times, you don't feel much. We've talked about this last week. Sometimes it doesn't move you at all. You would love for it to you want for it to, and that is a good desire. But when it doesn't, it doesn't change God's eternal promise. Always remember what it points to. Always remember what it promises. And it is not dependent on you, but it is to help strengthen you. And in remembering, in fact, I would argue, and this has been true of my own uh, being a Christian, being a church member, some of the hardest seasons where I was getting nothing and it felt barren, so I thought, which is arrogant because it requires me knowing something's going on, right? True, uh, um, but, but I deal differently with my spiritual life for some reason. I feel like I need to know something's happening. I need to see proof. I need, I need to feel something. Well, I will tell you that those hardest seasons, 
those darkest seasons when I felt next to nothing and was so desperate in the wilderness. I can point back to and say, that is where I grew. That is the source of my faithfulness now. That is the source of my understanding of God's love now because he held me up, sustained me when I was trying to come off the rails. Now, I did the basics, but it wasn't pretty. I did just, I, don't, I, I can't even say just enough. That would be a lie. Maybe I did just enough for my own kind of keeping in the game. But it, it's those seasons that mattered the most and have meant the most in the seasons where I actually could feel something, where God was gracious to bring those things in phase. But it is his promise and the things that are signified and all that he gives us that reminds us of who and whose we are and will strengthen us as we find ourselves in difficult circumstances. So the question that we were from Westminster Larger Catechism kind of alluding to is this question 163 where it says, what are the parts of a sacrament? And notice how this connects to what we've been talking about. There are two parts of a sacrament. One is the outward and perceivable sign. That's what we can see or experience used, and this is critical, used according to Christ's own instruction. And the other is the inward and spiritual grace signified by it that God brings to fruition in his own wisdom and his own time. So let me ask you, what are the things that help you Remember God's covenant love for you. Well, I would hope that uh, the Lord's table would be one of those places. That would be a place that you can regularly remember. This is why we have some of our brothers and sisters who argue, we need to do it every week. Not a bad argument. And so, so when we do do it, May it be something that strengthens us and reminds us uniquely of who and whose we are, whether you feel anything or not. It is a ratification. If you, if you don't know, the Lord's Supper is essentially a covenant ratification ceremony. It is a re-ratification or God saying, once again, clearly, I love you. Nothing has changed. It just helps us to remember. Anytime we get to witness a baptism, it's an opportunity to remember that our sin has been put to death with Christ and we have risen from the grave to newness of life, regardless of the mode, they all mean essentially the same thing, but highlight different motifs, yes? It's also when you see a pouring, good to remember you've been filled with the Holy Spirit, and that gives you power because he's praying when you don't even know what to pray. He's advocating to Christ who's already interceding before you've even asked word knowing all that. And you're filled with the Spirit in terms of being able to be convicted of sin and righteousness. Guided to do what is wise and good and Christ-like. And so, hopefully, that is some of what you would see in a baptism. There are other things as well that can serve uh, as, as reminders of God's covenant love for you. And that's good. And I don't want to discount those things. For me, it has oftentimes been being in nature. Oftentimes, too often, it's related to food. Uh, and... Uh, and other things. So it's, it, those are good, but these are the ones that he said that you always have them. For as long as there is a church, it is critical that the church practice the sacraments, not for the sacraments just themselves, but for everything that they point to and everything that they do in the power of the Holy Spirit to strengthen us. Amen? And so Genesis 17, 1 through 17, the way it's been preached, would teach us that God gives the sacraments or the signs to strengthen us 
in covenantal relationship with him. May it be true of us, church, that before we would divide over matters, that we would make sure to fight toward one another, and that we would make sure that we're fighting toward one another, uh, knowing that we are loved in, in, in God, in Christ, uh, by his grace alone, and that we would recognize that no matter what we think about certain things, it's most important what we think about what they point to. Amen? Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace to us and the signs that you grant to us. Thank you that these are not just wooden laws to be carried out in a heartless fashion, but instead point to the deep, deep love that you have for us. They point to your heart displayed in and through the person and work of Christ. Thank you that we are not cut off, that we have instead a sacrament that is not about judgment. It does speak to judgment, but instead is, is points to uh, resurrection power that courses through our veins and the spirit that indwells us. Thank you that, that we recognize the patterns that we see that your longing is to, to bless both Jews and Gentiles uh, and that who you call first is the lead servant, not the, the power broker, and that we are co-heirs together in this in so many different ways, male and female being but one of them. And there are many others that we could, we could name. And God, thank you that you give us unification in Christ. That we, in union with Christ, are united to one another and united to you. I pray that your sacraments would help strengthen us in those in a more robust and real and felt fashion going forward. In Christ's name, amen.